the king of the New Testament epistles, and for good reason. The letter is all about God and the good news that no matter who we are or what we've done, though we're all sinful and well-deserving of God's judgment, we can be saved from God's wrath simply by trusting in God's Son. We are put right with God through grace, through faith. Salvation is a gift from God. This is the message of Romans. Now let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse study through this incredible book. All right, I welcome you back to your seats. We are ready to pick up where we left off. So let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Now, Heavenly Father, as we quiet our hearts and focus our minds on the living word of God, we ask that your spirit is with us. The Holy Spirit has been sent into our hearts for this very cause, to teach us things about Christ, to encourage us, to uh, edify us and build us up in our faith. And may that be the result of our time together, closer to you and more confident, more bold, and more resting in your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, it was very cool timing indeed last week. Uh, We are going through, of course, the book of Romans week after week, verse after verse. And how cool was it to land right on Romans 10 on Easter Sunday morning, Resurrection Sunday, as we call it, to land right on the perfect passage for Easter morning. Uh, It was perfect because it simply described the gospel, the way to be saved and such ease and simplicity, and that's what you want on Easter Sunday morning. And uh, maybe you noticed on top of that, I used the New Living Translation, which I like to do at Christmas time or at Easter time, because, you know, the services are geared toward your loved ones who you invite, who, who often only come because of your invitation on your birthday or Mother's Day or Easter or uh, Christmas, and just to make things as simple and easy as possible. And so uh, praise the Lord for Romans 10 showing up right in the nick of time, explaining the gospel so clearly, uh, just that, as it said, that if we just simply confess with our mouths Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that he is risen indeed, uh, we will be saved. So how easy is that? So the empty tomb, of course, is indeed proof that Jesus is who he claimed to be. Very God of very God, as Charles Spurgeon called him. And Jesus will do as he has promised to do to save all those who come to him in faith. Forgiveness of all of our sins reconciliation to God our Father, life everlasting, a free gift, the gospel, the good news of God. And that is the theme, of course, here in chapters 9, 10, and 11. Uh, Paul has been speaking about this great salvation and most specifically what happened regarding Israel, through whom the gospel comes, through whom the Messiah, the Savior of the world, comes through 
Israel, and yet Israel sort of has rejected, for the time being, has rejected the Christian gospel. And so Paul is, by the power of the Holy Spirit, explaining uh, the gospel in terms of, A, what not to do, using Israel as an example. And so let's get some context for picking up where we left off. The opening verses of chapter 10 says, don't imitate that example. Anybody who thinks religiously or spiritually, no matter how zealous you are, he said, it's not going to count if it's not God's way. God made a way for man to be right with him. And he laid down his life. It's not about good works. So anything works-based, then it's up to you, your eight paths or even your Ten Commandments or uh, the, the four pillars or the five pillars of this and that. Uh, it's all not going to work because God has a way. And so don't approach God your own way, but no matter how sincere or zealous you are, because you can be sincerely wrong but sincere all the while. And so the second thing he said there, as we get ready to pick up there, he said, since it all depends on God for your salvation, it's a simple prayer away that it's easy. So he, he makes the point, stop making it so hard and complicated, as if God wants you to climb the highest mountain or plunge the depths of the deepest ocean. He says, how do you get saved? It's as close as your lips and your heart. It's just a change of heart. It's faith in God. It's trust coming uh, to him in a simple prayer. So he said it's easy. And so he, he ended up telling us this simple prayer that all we need to do is uh, call on his name and entrust ourselves to him. And then the life, the Christian life, that has plenty of disciplines, plenty of, plenty of do's and don'ts, right? The Christian life flows as a response to have been given eternal life, not in an effort to obtain it. It makes all the difference in the world. And so now he's going to pick up um, and continue the theme of how easy salvation is, so accessible to everybody, so wonderful, and it's imperative, right? Because you have two choices in life, to be saved or to perish. And so it's pretty important that we get it right. And then he's going to say, uh, and since it's so easy and so imperative that people get saved and not perish, that we ought to get all excited and go tell everybody about Jesus, that it is not only so easy for people to get saved, but once you get saved, the fact is that we become part of the, the, uh, the search and rescue effort itself, that we partner with God. Once we are right with God, we become workers with God to help others to become saved. And so he's going to pick up on that now as we see here in verses 12 through 14. But, you know, I backed up just to give you a little context. We did look at these verses on Resurrection Sunday morning. So picking up at verse 9. So he says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is God, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, the tomb's empty, he's alive, he's at work, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are acquitted or pardoned, forgiven. That's what justified means. 
And it's with your mouth that you kind of confirm that you're saved. You confess, you go public, and uh, it shows that you're saved. Verse 11, as the scripture says in Isaiah 28 and verse 16, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. And here's where we pick up, verse 12 through 15. For there's no difference between religious people and non-religious people, Jews or Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of everybody and richly blesses who? All who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, that's the stipulation, will be saved. And that's a quote out of Joel chapter 2. Now some rhetorical questions about the implication of the Christian responsibility that it's so easy for people to come to the Lord. Well, hmm. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone telling them or declaring to them or sharing the gospel? Verse 15, and how can they preach unless they're sent and supported? As it is written in Isaiah chapter 52, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And so... That's going to be where we land today, 12 through 15, for our reflection. Really two big ideas. Those who are lost need to simply believe the message, right? And then those who are saved simply need to share it, right? So in other words, if you're lifted out of the shark-infested waters and you're put on the boat and you're safe, uh, immediately God expects you to be reaching down to others. And that's really part and parcel of the gospel. And if you're a Christian, it's not if you should be doing that. It's that you should be doing it. And the Bible tells us how and why. And so that's kind of what we're looking at this morning. And we begin with verse 12. With Paul building now on the ease, because God's heart is that all people uh, come to the knowledge of the truth and are saved. He's not willing that anybody perish, but everybody come to repentance, right? And so that's why he's made it so wonderfully easy. So he's saying it's not beyond you, it's within you. It's as close as a prayer away. So verse 12 picks up on this whole idea. Not only is Christ easily accessible, he's accessible to anyone, verse 11, that we just read, to everyone, verse 13, since there's no difference, verse 12, and there's no favoritism, so nobody is excluded. Now, this, these words, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord, everyone who believes, any person, all who believe, it really is, uh, corrects, uh, what, there's a, kind of an objection out there, an offense in the world, and they often uh, give God a bad rap by saying things like the gospel's only for some people out there. It's so exclusive uh, in nature. And of course, the source of that lie would be the devil who, who, opposite of God, who came to steal, kill, and destroy and wants nobody to make it to heaven. And so he slanders God. And in fact, that's what the word devil means, slanderer. So he lies to people and says, oh, the gospel's so exclusive. Well, here's the truth. The way to heaven, to the Father, is indeed exclusive by definition of the one who came to offer it. Jesus said, I'm God, 
there's only one way to forgive you is that I will take your punishment and I will bleed and I will die and I will suffer and I will be shamed for you. And this is the only way that you could be made right by justice that somebody paid for you. So I'm just telling you there's only one way, but it's, it's an inclusive invitation of whosoever. So yeah, it's an exclusive path God says, look, I'm the only way you can do this. I mean, I'm God, and I made the way for you. And it costs my own life, the life of his son, right? And so he says, whosoever, then there's no difference in your verse there, verse 12. There's no difference because we all have the same need. Whosoever, religious, non-religious, male, female, no matter your race, your creed, your color, your sexual orientation, does not matter at all to the call. God is calling everybody, the good guys, the bad guys, the heroes, the thugs, the villains, the perverts, those we despise the most in this life because they've done the most heinous of crimes. They're welcome. All are welcome. So how can we ever say your gospel is so exclusive when he says whosoever, which includes everybody in that list, greedy people, obnoxious people, mean people, they're all welcome. They're included in the deal. Come on, anybody. So whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. All are welcome at the king's table. And let me show you a parable that really uh, underscores uh, this so well. At a Matthew, Jesus tells the parable. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a great wedding feast for his son. Boy, that sounds familiar. When the banquet was ready, he sent his servants, the Jewish prophets here in this case, to notify those who were invited, but they, Israel, generally speaking, refused to come. So he tells his servants, hey, the wedding feast is ready, and the guests I invited aren't worthy of the honor. I mean, they've rejected it. Now go out to the street corners and invite everyone. There's the word. Everyone you see, what qualifies them to get to the table? Everyone you see, if you see them, they're qualified. Do they have a heartbeat, a pulse? Bring them in. Bring them in. So <laughs> the servants brought in everyone. There it is again. Everyone they could find, good and bad. There it is. So whether you manage your sin nature uh, fairly well or whether you're like bad to the bone and not afraid to show it. You, you know, it doesn't matter. The, the banquet hall was full. Now, here's what the parable goes on to say. And what we know from culturally is that back in ancient times, when the king did invite everybody just out of his benevolent heart, people didn't have the clothes to go to the palace and sit at the king's table, so royal kind of coverings or robes were passed out at the door. The only way that you could get in was to get one of those robes. And they were freely given to whoever was invited. And, you know, whoever you find, invite them, tell them to come in. They put on the royal covering, and they were good to go. Now, in, later in the parable, the king is walking around, and he sees somebody with their street clothes on, with stains under the arms and just this mess, dirty. And he goes, what are you doing in here? 
bind this guy, toss him out. But the rest of the unbelievers, well, why? Because he's not covered. See, good and bad are all welcome. As long as you come in, you have an exchange in God's goodness and your sins. Your sins go on God and Christ's goodness and he gives everybody, quote unquote, the robe of righteousness. Thence you can go back to the verse. Uh, I love what the Isaiah said. He said, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robes of righteousness. You see, the good, bad, <laughs> ugly, whatever, criminals. Now, when you come in, there's an exchange that happens, an experience of new life, and then you're transformed. And then that transformed behavior will be in compliance to the character and commands of Christ. And so your behavior does, <laughs> is irrelevant to come to the table. But once you come to the table, if you truly have come to the table, then your behavior will begin to change because he puts new life in you. And the only goodness that will ever count in God's eyes is something that is a response to having been put right with God, not by your own effort or your goodness, but by his mercy, you see? And so then the whole Christian life is really a response. You're not being good to save yourself. You're being good because you're saved. And he gave you that as a free gift. And so that's the gospel here. Now, the key is to call on the name of the Lord. So we better understand what that means since eternal destinies depend on calling on the name of the Lord. Uh, what does it mean? Well, here's it. I mean, it involves a lot of ideas. Certainly it means faith, right? Because you wouldn't call on somebody you didn't believe in, right? And that's what saves you. I believe in you. I acknowledge your lordship, right? You're, you're, you've already said Jesus is Lord, God. So it implies coming under him, becoming his servant, being submissive to him, doing his will. There's a lot in just calling on the name of the Lord instead of some people hear that and go, oh, at the end of my life, I'll get a two-minute warning and then I'll just call on the name of the Lord and I'll be saved. Well, I don't know that that's a good thing to trust in uh, because it sounds a little superficial to me. Now, here's one writer uh, who put it so... Uh, well, about what it means to call on the name of the Lord. He said, multitudes of mouths exclaim, oh my God, in the moment of crisis. They call on the name of the Lord and shoot up desperate prayers for help, yet they themselves remain in unbelief. When the crisis passes, so too their so-called faith in God. It's like the seed that's sown in shallow soil that pops up once with joy after it's tested it falls away. This is not what is meant here. Calling on the name of the Lord is a surrender of one's will, prompted by faith that Jesus is Lord, and now he's your Lord too. So that new life is evidence that you truly called on the name of the Lord in a saving way, that that arrow hit the bullseye and boom, there's life. You know, here's John. I love First John because he just lays it out there. He said, if someone claims, I know the Lord, but doesn't obey God's commands, that person is a liar and not living 
in the truth. So yeah, we come as we are. We have no other choice. The thing that qualifies you to be saved is that you need to be saved, right? I mean, if you call him a savior, hey, I have a savior, what's your role in that? Your role in that is that you were helpless and couldn't save yourself. That's why we have a savior. That's what qualifies you. But once you're saved, the evidence that Christ indeed has saved you, he put his Holy Spirit in you, and there better be some changes in the way you speak, the way you think, the way you live. Not moral perfection, but just a a transformation. Whoever, therefore, is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. When you're baptized in the water, you're saying, the old me died, covered, gone, goodbye, those sins washed away, water, and, and then this Holy Spirit raised me up to a new life with new power, a new mind, new goals, new agenda, new way of talking, new way of living. That's the gospel. And so I love the line there, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord uh, will be saved out of Joel. And there's a couple of things I want to talk to you about that. And then we'll dive into the four rhetorical questions about our responsibility with the good news. So first thing I want you to see, it's a nice shout out. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, we already were told the passcode is Jesus is Lord. But Joel's Lord in the original context of whoever calls on the name of the Lord is Yahweh, is Jehovah, is God the Father. So now we're told, hey, it's okay. You can call Yahweh Jesus and get away with it because Jesus is equal to God in every way. There's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's a real miraculous, hard-to-understand thing, but the three are one. And so this is a beautiful um, depiction of uh, what Jesus told us. He said to Philip when Jesus mentioned the Father at the Last Supper, You'll recall, and uh, Philip said, you know what? It would be great if you gave us a vision of the Father there. And so what Jesus says is to Philip, how long have I been with you and still you don't know me? Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. That amazing thing to say, show us God. And that'll be so comforting. He goes, have I been with you so long? You don't see me? Hello? Wow. Wow. I and the Father are one, and that's just another shout-out right there that you're calling on the name of the Lord Jesus because he is the Lord, equal in every way. The second thing I want you to see about that is is that the context of whoever calls on the name of the Lord in Joel chapter 2, the context is what is called the day of the Lord. We call it the apocalypse. Uh, That's not really accurate, but we know what that means. Armageddon, the last seven years of Earth's human history, as the Bible prophesies. That, as Jesus said, he called it the Great Tribulation. That's where we get the term. The last seven years where life just kind of... Jesus said, oh, there's been tribulation before, and there'll always be tribulation. But this tribulation... Oh, it's a different kind of tribulation. He said, in fact, if those days weren't cut short, and they're cut short for the mercy of those who get saved during that time, he said not one soul would be left. The oceans don't have any life in them. Read Revelation. 21 judgments that come down. 
the wrath of God for a Christ-rejecting world. But what Joel says, if whoever's alive at that time before those seven years starts, and when that day comes, they are exempt from the day of the Lord. Like the New Testament teaches, we are not appointed to God's wrath. The day of judgment, Armageddon, the apocalypse, is called, when it starts in Revelation 6, the day of God's wrath has come. Paul and the entire New Testament says, we are not appointed to God's wrath. Why? Because God's wrath was poured out on his son for us. We are in the son. We are not appointed to a Christ-rejecting, wrath-filled world. We are removed. And how does he say that happens? As Jesus said, there'll be two in a kitchen. One goes, one stays. There'll be two in a field. One goes, one stays. And so Paul says, according to the Lord's own words, we who are alive and remain at the coming of that great and terrible, awesome day shall be caught up together out of harm's way in a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet in a flash. Done. And then, my friends... Put on thy seatbelts if you find yourself here after the church is removed because there are going to be some rocking and some rolling. Uh, Revelation chapter 6, all the way through 19 when he appears. But here's the fringe benefit. It's not Peter uses that line on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit descends and the church is born. So he's preaching Everybody gets saved. For as it is written, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved from the great tribulation. That's the original context. So yes, of course it means all your sins are wiped out. You're reconciled to God. You have new life. We get what saved means. You're going to heaven. But the context and the continuation of this teaching throughout the Gospels and the New Testament and the Old Testament is those who are right with God will be spared from, and I'm quoting now, God's word to the church, Revelation 3 and verse 10. I will spare you from the hour that is coming upon the whole earth, the hour of great tribulation, coming upon the whole earth. He says, I'll keep you from that. That's part of the promise. So if you've called on the name of the Lord, you are not going to be around for, things could get rough, but it's not the great tribulation because whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen? Amen. I think you get the point. And we're going to move on here. So the way of salvation has been made clear. It's so thrilling. It's so easy, so hopeful, so accessible, so important because, uh, you know, eternity hangs in the balance, right? And so now he's going to say, well, we better get busy as God's people making sure that those around us don't end up perishing or have to be on the earth when this great tribulation breaks out. So, as I said, if you're lifted out of shark-infested waters and put safe, it's your job to care about those who are yelling in the ocean waters right near you. You're safe. 
I don't know, a lot of immature Christians are like, phew, you know, now I got fire insurance, I go on and I'm safe. And you know what? You're saved to save. You are rescued to be part of the rescue. You're always blessed to be a blessing. You're refreshed to refresh. I've got scriptures for all of these. You are comforted to comfort. That's what he does. Whatever good thing he's doing in you, he wants to perpetuate that to the people in your sphere of influence. And salvation is no different. And so let's take a a look at these verses here. He's going to ask us four rhetorical questions, almost to the point of being ridiculous, but he's trying to drive home the point that, and he's making an airtight case, there's only one way for people to get saved. They have to hear a message, and if they have to hear a message that goes into their heart to stir them to faith to get saved, right, then somebody has to be talking. Because if salvation depends on information into the ear, to the heart, to the faith, and calling out, if that's God's way, and we're the ones who know that, we're the ones with the passcode. We're the ones who know where the well of water is for somebody who's dying of thirst, then shouldn't we be the ones pointing, directing? Now, this church, this church, this is like preaching to the choir, to this church, because you guys are a bunch of evangelists. Uh, I hear stories from all of you about opportunities to share your burdens for your uh, lost loved ones and your coworkers and how it breaks all of our hearts to see people still flailing in the water. You toss them a lifeline. You're looking for those opportunities. So I say, way to go uh, to everybody here because you're doing a fantastic job, but it doesn't mean that we don't need to be encouraged to continue because sometimes we get distracted Right, And so these questions are going to face us. The first one there, how can they call on the one they haven't believed in? Now, that's interesting, verse 14. Notice faith comes first before they can call. So the faith prompts them to seek and to reach out to the Lord, which confirms their salvation. So that's interesting. So in order to faith to form in somebody, they need some basic information. The content is required. Now, who can tell them the basic understanding so they know who to believe in? You see? So the first question is saying, if they need to know, A, there's a problem, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. That's why we die. But God in love sent his son to die for us. He was crucified, dead, and buried, and rose again on the third day. And then he offered to whosoever eternal life to anyone who believes. Done. That's the basic gospel. That's what we have to share. So he's saying, how can anybody put their faith in Jesus if they don't know the simple outline, the plan? And so that's an implication, church. You know, make sure the people you're dealing with kind of have a concept. Now, I mean, you don't have to be a Bible expert to share that or to become a Christian. I barely knew anything. I knew this. I knew that I was a sinner. That I knew. And I knew I liked being a sinner, too. I was 19 years old. I knew there was a God. I started hearing the Jesus and the cross and something about that. And I knew I was running from God. And I kind of knew he was after me. 
And, and so that's all I, and then when I got the prompt, why will you go to hell when you don't have to? I was like, I had no good answer for that, you know? And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to surrender, right? The Samaritan woman, come on, John chapter four, Jesus called her out, just blew her mind. You know, she's talking to him and he says, you know, I've got this living water. Anybody who drinks of the water I give, they'll never be thirsty again. And she says, uh, oh, I want that kind of water. And he says, go, go, tell your, go call your husband and come back and I'll talk to you. And she says, oh, I'm not married. And, she, and Jesus says, yeah, that's true. You're not married. You've been married five times. And the guy you're living with right now, he's not your husband. So <laughs> what you've said is quite true. You're not married. And she goes, whoa. I perceive you are a prophet, and then changes the subject. That was so funny. But she ends up, in the long run, she does finish well. She goes into town, and she starts yakking away. A woman, never been to Bible college, she doesn't know anything about the Bible or the gospel. All she knows is, whoa, come meet a man who told me my life story. Could this be the Christ? She's not even saying he's the Christ. She's just provoking curiosity and all she's doing is saying, oh, my heart's been touched. I've been changed. Something's happening in me. Is this the one? Is this the way? And as a result of her word, John chapter 4 says, as a result of her words, the entire village comes out. And a lot of them come to faith and are saved. What? Because this woman, and so sometimes we complicate it, like, I don't know what to say, you know, I barely know where the scriptures are, you know, but what, he's done something for you, and so when somebody says, I'm really anxious, you can talk about how God has calmed you down, you know, there are some natural ways to be able to share some of this information. Now, now questions two and three, they're kind of um, synonymous, and so let's put them together. It's the rest of verse 14, and it is sort of the crux of my message. How can they believe in the one they haven't heard about? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? And so he's kind of, I think he's being funny, because, I mean, he's being logical, but he's going, okay, let's think about how you get saved, right? Anybody here get saved because you heard something? Raise your hand if you got saved because you heard something. Let the record indicate that everybody has raised their hand. So Paul's saying the Holy Spirit's backing you into a corner to understand. Now, wait a second. It's not somebody else's job. It's not just the pastor's job. It's not the job of angels. That anybody who has the information and is around somebody who's perishing, you are responsible to follow the discernment of the Holy Spirit and common sense and social etiquette you know, to be salt and light, to be um, prayerful and willing at least to say something wherever you find that person in their spiritual status. And so there are some misconceptions about sharing the gospel. Let's talk about a few of them. One is this quote. It's attributed to St. Francis, but uh, everybody says he didn't say it. But here's what he didn't say. Uh, (laughs) Preach the gospel at all times and use words if necessary. Now, the spirit behind that is awesome. 
because if our lives don't impact people, if they don't see a difference in our lives, if we're not living uh, lives above reproach, then our message is really no good at all, right? But sometimes we use this loving them to Jesus approach, or I let people see the gospel through my life, um, as a reason why we don't need to say anything. And why do we do that? The Bible's saying, oh, no, you have to. If they're going to, if they have to hear something, then someone has to speak. And guess who that someone is? That's what the point of this is. The point is this is they got to hear something from somebody so that they can know something, so that they can believe. And if they have to hear something, then it, some lips have to be moving. So, so, so that might be you. That's the point here. And so the reason we don't want to, and I am guilty of this, you think, yes, I have an ability as an evangelist. I, I mean, uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 4 says that God gives that gift. But, you know, I know the feeling of I don't want to, to ruffle anybody's feathers right now. I don't want to be rejected. I don't want to um, bring some bad news or something awkward and say something like what the gospel implies. What the gospel implies to every person is you're wrong. You, you, you're doing something not right. You need to get right with God because you're doing something that he needs to correct Right, and if you don't, there's judgment. And so the part, the first part of the good news is wrestling with that bad news. And a lot of people don't want to do it. I mean, there's just all kinds of fears. And God is saying, "Listen, you got to get over that. You got to get over it because of the importance of eternity. You have to get over it." And so, you know, to be sure, there's a time and place. I mean, you've got to do your job. You're at the job to do a good job. You should do your good job, right? And, and uh, nothing's worse than not doing a good job and sitting around and talking about Jesus instead of doing your job. That's terrible. That's not what he's asking us to do. He's asking us when God opens a window of opportunity and it's socially proper and you're not being a weirdo. You're not just cold cocking people with the gospel, knocking them unconscious, you know. I had this friend in youth group. He used to jump out in front of people on the sidewalk. Do you know Christ as your personal savior? You know, and one lady clutched her chest like she's having a heart attack. I'm like, dude, you don't want to send them into eternity before you preach the gospel. <laughs> but that weird kind of out of step that's not what he's talking about. Every person you see, you know, no, no, no opportunities. You're looking, your radar's on, you're prayerful. You have already know who God might be dealing with because you're praying for them and you're just kind of listening quietly. And then you sensitively say one or two lines here or there, but if God gives you more time, and it's prompting you, you can discern that. So discernment is really a key thing for sure. He just wants us to at least have compassion and not get overwhelmed, you know? There are a lot of people who are introverts. It's not a sin to be an introvert. You don't, God doesn't call us all to be extroverts. And so in your introverted way, you invite people to church, 
You, you listen and you take a stab at it when God opens the window. But listen, if you're an introvert, you tell jokes. You really do. You give directions. If somebody says, hey, do you know, how do you get to Safeway? You tell them, right? I, I, I mean, if you've got some good news, you're an introvert, you'll tell it. So uh, we have to get over and not use the way God made us, which is okay with him. But, you know, maybe you shine your light in a little bit of a different way than a full-blown evangelist. And that's perfectly fine as long as you don't excuse yourself completely because, oh, that's just something I don't do. Well, uh, there are people around you who God thinks that you should be able to be salt and be light and be a lifeline to people. And I think maybe we get it in our heads that we have to be or say or do something that God's not requiring at all. Jesus wasn't a weirdo. Uh, He was popular. He got invited to weddings. In fact, it says he didn't stand on the street corners and make a scene. Matthew chapter 12. It says he never raised his voice. He never, he didn't, you know. He's got a couple, he's got John the Baptist. They're out there. But the rest of us, you know, we just go about our day and try to look for opportunities to help people who are in need. Amen? Amen. That's really what's going on here. Now, yes, loving people to Jesus. You know, can you imagine if you're on a sinking boat and the crew is supposed to save you, just starts hugging you, right? <laughs> Because they love you. They're going to love you, Jesus, right? Okay, so then they tell you, while the boat is taking on water, you know, by the way, we did a turndown service in your room. We put a chocolate on your pillow. You know, we're going to just, we just, we love you. You know, what Paul's saying is, love people to Jesus, live above reproach, let your life impact them. But sooner or later, my dear Christian friends, you will have to tell the story. You'll have to tell your story. You'll have to tell his story because people can't uh, figure out uh, all the time what it means. They may say, hey, wow, you know, and people say this of Christian people. I want to have a marriage like yours. I wish I had that kind of peace when I'm going through that. You, You see, impacting is good, but don't stop there. Then look for the opportunity to instruct. Don't you want the crew on the sinking vessel to say, the lifeboats, they're on deck five. Take this stairwell. Here, here's the jacket. Here's how you put it on. Here's how you tie it off. Right? Don't you want that? I could care less about the chocolate candy on the pillow (laughs) as the boat's going down. You know, somebody standing before the great white throne of God. Saying, oh, I was so impressed with my neighbors. They were always so sweet and kind. And I knew they went to church. But they never heard a bad word out of them. And, and, and he's standing before the great white throne. Now, it's not all of our responsibility, but we do our part, right? And so you do realize where this is all headed, right? If we have what they need, and we choose to withhold that, then we're accountable, right? We can't be blessed. Listen, I have a story for you. It's out of the Old Testament, 2 Kings 
chapter 7, as we get down to the bottom of these questions now, our accountability, right? So there was a famine back in 2 Kings 7 and in Jerusalem, and people were starving inside those walls. And even worse, Jerusalem was surrounded by the Syrian army. And so they were in double trouble, right? And so there were these four lepers, you remember the story, that were at the gate. You know, they couldn't go inside because they had leprosy, and they were stuck begging out there, but they were starving to death, right? So here's what they say. They say to each other, hey, let's leave here and go into the Syrian camp and surrender. Maybe they will give us food as POWs, you know? And if they kill us, they kill us. But guess what? We stay here, we're dead. So let's go at least try. So they go out, lo and behold, they go to the Syrian army camp, and the soldiers got all paranoid by a miraculous intervention of the Lord, and he caused the Syrian army to flee for their lives and left their gold, their silver, their bread, their wine, everything. Their livestock that they had along, their horses, it's all there. So let me read to you what happened. When the men with leprosy arrived at the edge of the camp, they went into one tent after another. I think I have it. Oh, wow. Eating and drinking wine. So they, they, whoa, Eureka, (laughs) we scored. And they carried off the silver and the gold and and the clothing and hid it. (laughs) Finally, they said to each other, "Um, this is not right. This is a day of gospel, oh, good news, gospel. And we aren't sharing it with anyone but ourselves. If we wait until morning, Something terrible is going to happen to us for sure. Come on, let's go back and tell the people at the palace. So verse 10, they went back to the city and told the gatekeepers what had happened. We went out to the Aramean or Syrian camp. They said, and no one was there. The horses, the donkeys were tethered and the tents were all in order. And there wasn't a single person around. Then the gatekeeper shouted the news to the people in the palace. Thank you for that, Spence. You can go back to our verses. Yeah, we got saved. We got the silver and gold. We got the bread of life that whoever eats of that bread should never die. We've got that. Should we hide it, right? And, you know, it's on them. But even they realized that's not the way God will bless us. This isn't a behavior that will bring blessing, right? And so God holds us accountable. I like what the book of Proverbs says in chapter 24. Rescue those being led away to death. Restrain those stumbling toward the slaughter. If you say, behold, we did not know about this. Does not he who weighs our hearts consider? You see? No, it's not your job to rescue everybody passing you by at Cottingtown Mall. No, you don't have to think like that. But it is your job to start thinking about those around you who you have some sort of natural daily uh, connection with, just how you could be helpful here and there, which most of you do anyway. But I'm just here to remind us all there's no other way for them but us, 
and we, our words, are sufficient. And sometimes it just takes a little word. Do you, this is my go-to story for how just a little word can, bam, make such a big difference. I was working for Pepsi back in the day, and I was merchandising a store. And that means you're setting up the product on the shelves kind of thing. And I was always bumping into this one guy, the Coke guy, right? He, he has a name. Let's call him Sergio because that's his name. <laughs> so Sergio always liked to tease me for some reason in good nature, you know, just kind of having fun. But he said, man, you move slow, right? And he said, and he used to say, one Pepsi can, two Pepsi cans. <laughs> Three Pepsi cans, you know, that kind of thing. And so we just had a back and forth kind of thing. But I never really shared anything with him that I was aware of. You know, I, maybe here and there we talked. But, you know, so one day I run into him and he's got a tear coming down his eye. He goes, I'm so glad I saw you. He goes, what you said to me, thank you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. What you said, it's changed my life. I am back with my wife. I'm going to AA. We go to this church where they sing a lot of songs, too many songs. <laughs> but he says, I find myself singing, and I'm happy, and my whole life has changed. I just want to thank you for what you said. And I'm like, dude, what did I say? <laughs> I just, I really want to know. I do not have any memory of it. And so the Lord always uses that. It's just, just something slipped out accidentally. Accidentally, I might have said something I did, say something about the gospel, but I just say a couple one-liners here and there, but that's all some people need is just a word. You're not quoting Huck Finn, by the way. You're quoting the living, breathing, powerful word of God, and when that gets in someone's ear, it goes into someone's heart, and that combined with faith, they call out, and their whole life is changed. And how easy was that? I didn't even know it happened. And so the Lord always reminds me, how much more when you're actually trying and praying and thinking, God, this is a prayer. God will always answer. A lot of people, God never answers my prayer. Pray this one. Oh, he will answer it. Lord, bring somebody my way who needs the gospel. Go ahead, try it. And he will. And many of you do this. And you tell me all of those stories. It's fascinating. God will just open a, a window. You know, I told you the story, and this is my last one, then we'll finish up. I told you the story where I'm, I'm at work teaching at a vocational uh, college, talking about opportunities that are obvious. And uh, this guy is reading the paper. And we're all at lunch, and it's quiet in the room. And there are a lot of teachers sitting around. And so the guy says, reading the paper, he says, oh, plane crash on the golf course. The guy died. And another teacher says, I wonder if it hurts to die. And then he says, I don't know. We'll never know because nobody's ever died and come back to tell us what it's like. <laughs> and then it was like time froze. <laughs> and all the angels went, And it was such a pause. It was an anointed pause. I just thought, well, if I wait it out, it'll stop. Somebody said something. There was no waiting it out. So I said, well, actually, 
you know, and everybody looked up because I knew they would. <laughs> I said, actually, that's the whole thing about the gospel is that Jesus died, tasted death for everyone so that we wouldn't have to. And then they went back to reading the paper. <laughs> you know what? But the Holy Spirit, that's a seed, right? So the Holy Spirit can take one little thing. He said, hey, it's my time to say something. So I said it. Now I could go my way just going, ah, you know, it's not my job to grow the seed and to make the seed fruitful. My job was just put it out there. And then they're walking away. The Holy Spirit is on who he needs to be on. And he's watering who he needs to be watering, and he's helping them to come to faith. And so finally, he says, it's not just you being salt and light, but collectively, when you guys come together, how can preachers, missionaries, be sent, uh, preach without being sent or supported because they couldn't do their job? So that's the last question there at verse 15. How can they preach unless they're sent? And so then he says, listen, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news? And a quotation from Isaiah 57. And here's what he means by how beautiful the feet. He means that sharing the gospel like this is no drudgery. That's not burdensome. It's not fearful. It's not something, oh, no, I have to do this. But it's heroic it's honorable. It beautifies who you are. Who doesn't love and want to honor the hero that saves your life? When it's you who bring, brings a word and God Almighty uses your words and your efforts and your prayers to save a soul from eternal demise, your feet which aren't exactly the most attractive parts of any of us, right? Become beautiful. The beautiful message beautifies those who bring it. That's the point here, is that it's a noble task. Don't you be thinking of go to do this. No, you want to be a hero? You, in the eyes of those, well, the context of this was the POWs, um, Israel, was taken hostage uh, to Iraq, modern-day Iraq, for 70 years. And then God put it on King Cyrus's heart to let them all go back. And so those who were working in the administration who got that facilitated, the release, went to the captives there in Iraq to say, hey, we can go to Jerusalem. We're free. There were no really any Jews left in Israel. They were all POWs. And so... Uh, the Isaiah is prophesying those guys telling everybody, hey, we can go home. Hey, we can go back to Jerusalem. We're free, we're free, we're free. And how beautiful those dirty feet covered with the dust and dirt of the Middle East, calloused as they were, just how precious and wonderful the person is who will come out of their comfort zone to reach out to somebody with some good news and offer them Hope. Now, how much more awesome the joy and the beautiful feet of people who are not just telling people, hey, you're free to go back to a country. You're free to go back to the Father's house, the palace of heaven, the God who made you. You're reconciled. Never any sins to be used against you. No shame. Eternal life. 
and eternal pleasures at his right hand forevermore. How much more beautiful those who bring that word and reach out. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. God, we just thank you for the honor, the joy to be your mouthpieces, Lord, your hands, your feet. Uh, We forget that we're supposed to be salt and light to this world, God, and we get so wrapped up in our own hurts and lives and problems, and we've got a bunch of them right now. But meanwhile, the people around us are perishing, and we're sometimes not as focused as we should be. Help us live a other-centered life, God. Help us to put them back on the radar every day and do our best. We know we can just do a little bit here and there, but help us, Lord, to be faithful with that. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.